Hi, readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. Kate Stamen London is a novelist, screenwriter, and political strategist. She served as lead digital writer for Hillary Rodham Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and has written for notable figures ranging from President Obama to Cher. In her delightful, razor-sharp debut novel, One to Watch, a plus-size bachelorette brings a fresh look to a reality dating show. Let's join editor Emma Caruso in conversation with author Kate Stamen London. So Kate, perhaps let's start out with uh, the most difficult question. Uh, how are you doing right now? I mean, I would say broadly that this is a really amazing time for everyone, right? I think everyone's doing pretty great. No, I mean, I'm okay. Um, I'm lucky. I live, you know, in a lovely apartment in Los Angeles and really what a time to be an introverted writer who works from home. Um, But, you know, it's tough. It's been 100 days uh, plus on my own in this apartment. Um, But I just got tested for COVID yesterday. So I'm waiting for those results now. And fingers crossed when they come back negative, I'm going to go spend a little time with my family who I miss very much. So I'm doing okay. Yeah, so great. All right. So let's just jump into it. Let's start from the beginning. Um, How did you come up with the idea for uh, One to Watch? Just set the scene for us. Ah, so it was March of 2017, another wonderful time for our country and the world. And I actually, I had worked for Hillary Clinton as the lead digital writer for her campaign in 2015 and 2016. And after the election, I came back to LA and was trying to figure out, you know, I'd been a writer before that campaign and was coming back to it and thinking, what do I want to write about? Um, And everything made me sad. (laughs) Just It was a time in my life where every idea we came across, just everything, I was like, this is a bummer. (laughs) Um, But I was uh, indulging in one of my favorite sort of pastimes. I was watching The Bachelor, Mm -hmm. um, and that was Nick Vial's season. So it was March, and it was the season finale, and I was watching... And it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, there's really never been a plus-size person on this show. And what would it look like if a plus-size woman were the bachelorette? And I was so enamored by that idea. I stayed up until 1 or 2 in the morning writing just a little four-page pitch of what it could look like. And I emailed my literary agent the next morning. And she was like, I love this idea. Go see if you can write it. I wrote the whole first chapter that weekend and then... The rest was history. And now here we are. Now here we are, three <laughs> years later. And so what do you, why do you think you were so drawn to the Bachelor franchise? Why was it that comforting thing for you in a hard time? What made you want to write in this world? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason The Bachelor is such a huge cultural touchstone in America, right? And I think... It's that, you know, obviously a lot has been made of the drama and the comedy and sort of the producer behind the scenes manipulations and machinations. But for me, and I think for a lot of people, what it comes down to is that at the end of the day, you are really and truly getting to watch two people fall in love sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, And like thinking about what that would be like, not the, you know, 
kind of stagedness of it all, but the truth of this really vulnerable and complicated thing of falling in love with someone and doing that in front of an audience of millions, I found that such a fascinating idea and something that hasn't actually been explored that much. Totally, totally. And so amidst this, you know, entertaining premise of a novel that's set in front of the cameras of a reality television show, you've also written this really powerful story of inclusivity, not just creating a plus-size heroine, as you said, at the center of your story, but also portraying diversity and race, sexuality, and identity in the story. Why was this such an important aim for you when imagining and writing this novel? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot to love about The Bachelor, but there's a lot to be really critical of, too. And and the first thing is that it, it doesn't reflect reality for all that it's called reality television, right? And right. when you look at your life or my life, like, everyone isn't thin, everyone isn't white, everyone isn't straight, right? So it was really important to me first of all, to create a world that I was imagining that was more inclusive and more reflective of what the world actually looks like. Um, but also to sort of have characters who reflected my values and my priorities. So be the protagonist of One to Watch is white, but she makes it really clear when she's cast as the star of Main Squeeze as sort of the, the reality show in the world of the book, that diversity in terms of her cast and the men she's going to be dating is really important to her. And to me, having moments like that throughout the novel where people kind of use their privilege to give someone else a platform, that's a big reflection of a personal value of mine and something that I hope readers will really take to heart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now, um, you know, so this was your first novel. Your, it's your debut. Um, I would love debut. To, your debut, your first one. Um, I would love to know what one of the most surprising things you found while writing the novel, one of the things you weren't expecting or anything in that vein. In the beginning, and I remember even in that very first email I wrote to my literary agent with the with the little pitch, I was talking about the joy that I felt writing this story and the escapism I felt and, and how much I was looking forward to spending time in this kind of lighter and fluffier world after kind of the darkness of the real world. Um, and then, of course, as I got deeper into the writing process, uh, and you know this better than anyone, you know, when you're talking about creating an emotional arc for a character, you've got to like go to some tough emotional places. And I was really surprised by how difficult a lot of moments were in writing this novel. Um, there's a moment in the first chapter where B is getting over this really tough heartbreak. And she does something that I have certainly done and I think a lot of women have done, which is she writes an email that she's never going to send to the man who broke her heart, just sort of unloading and letting out all of the huge emotions she's feeling. And I can't remember Maybe it was like the second draft or the third draft. I don't know if you remember, but I sent it in and you were like, that email is my favorite thing right. in the entire novel. Mm -hmm. And I want you to go to that place and do more like that. And I was like, oh, cool, Emma, you just want me to do more of the writing <laughs> where I'm weeping in my bed in the middle of the night. No problem. Yeah. I can do more of that. No, just um, torture so, yourself but I emotionally think <laughs> for my benefit. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, even in a novel that is so joyful and is so escapist, if it's not grounded in real emotions, it's impossible to connect to the characters. It doesn't feel real. So that really surprised me in the process. But I think it also became one of the most gratifying parts of the process. Absolutely. Definitely. I think it would be, you know, good to talk about in terms of the way you wrote the novel that interspersed throughout the straight narrative of the story um, are mixed media elements like podcast transcripts, news articles, Twitter threads. Um, Why did you feel like these were important elements to add to this story? Yeah, I had so much fun writing all the mixed media elements of the novel. And I think part of it is that it reflects the way we actually experience shows like The Bachelor, that we're not watching these shows in a vacuum, um, that we're, uh, you know, we're listening to podcasts and reading the blog posts and texting and slacking with our friends and participating in betting pools, which Mm -hmm. I have certainly done with my friends over the years. And I really wanted that feeling for the audience of the book that you're also part of the audience of the show. Um, And I think it's really helpful too in thinking about the dichotomy of the way we experience these narratives as this really public thing where millions of people are involved, as opposed to the way the protagonist, B, would experience, you know, this really private emotional journey that she's going on and how those two things can look really, really different from the inside and the outside. So Mm -hmm. I really wanted to include that. Mm-hmm. And there's so much fun. I mean, we're talking on a podcast right now, but you just nail the podcast voice so well. And it was, that was some of my favorite stuff to read and edit, truly. Um, I mean, it's also, it's so much fun to have a Greek chorus and to have that kind of commentary that helps you place, you know, maybe get out of the protagonist's head a little bit and place what's happening in the novel from someone else's perspective. Totally. Totally. Um, So let's talk about uh, fashion for a minute, because that such plays such a huge role um, in the novel. And and you describe it so vividly in terms of these amazing, incredible outfits that B gets to wear. And, you know, often when I'm watching The Bachelor, I'm just like, I wish I could have that type of closet available to me. But um, why was that so important? to really have such vivid descriptions and have fashion play such a huge role in the novel? Um, Well, I love fashion, just first of all. Um, I have ever since. I vividly remember as a kid having the issue of People that was after the Oscars where Nicole Kidman wore the chartreuse John Galliano for Dior dress with embroidery and fur, and it was so fabulous and over the top, and ever since then I've just been obsessed with fashion. Um, And I love, you know, these iconic montages like we see in Pretty Woman or The Devil Wears Prada, where it's exactly that kind of fantasy you're talking about, where, you know, sort of an every girl suddenly has this unbelievable closet um, to peruse. And I had never seen a montage like that devoted specifically to a plus size woman. And I wanted to create that kind of fashion fantasy for B. But the problem is a ton of high fashion houses don't even make clothes above a size 10, Mm -hmm. let alone for someone who's a size 20 or size 26 or size 30. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the book, it was really important to me to make sure that if I was writing about a garment that B was wearing, that you could go and buy from that designer as a plus size woman. So every single designer who's mentioned in the book makes clothes at least up to a size 20 and often much higher. Um, And I think that that's just something fun, but also something 
to call out because people might not recognize or imagine that, you know, if you're above a size 10 or 12, you just don't have access to these clothes. Right. No, totally. Um, So speaking of, you know, your vivid descriptions and the way you brought these things to life, I mean, you do so many different types of writing. You're not just a novel writer, but you also do speech writing and you're also a screenwriter. And so how do you go about kind of juggling your quote unquote day job of of often working for campaigns or for in digital media strategy with the novel writing and how does that all kind of differ or is it similar I'm just curious how that experience has been for you yeah for me I have this really strange career at the exact you know kind of intersection of politics and pop culture and now literature as well. Um, And for me, having these different outlets is really helpful to me because they all kind of have different joys and different frustrations. So, you know, when I'm working in politics, I feel this really intense gratitude of being able to impact policy issues I care about and help push for change um, with campaigns and causes that really matter to me. But maybe I don't have a ton of creative freedom because we're writing to the message that's dictated by the polling or the candidate isn't comfortable saying a particular thing, right? So you have to work within a lot of constraints. And then with screenwriting, I love how collaborative it is. And you're working with directors and producers and different people who are bringing different ideas to the table. But also that can be a lot of cooks in the kitchen. So that can get frustrating too. Um, And with books, obviously it's so, you know, the creative freedom is just unparalleled. And particularly with someone like you as an editor, who's really just pushing me to to do my best work and, and write the work that's going to be the most meaningful to me. It's been, you know, maybe the most creatively satisfying experience of my life. But it's also, you know, it's you in a room for years at a time and it can get lonely. Um, So I think for me, having that balance of different kinds of writing that I do and different ways to kind of bring together my love of creativity and my love of sort of social justice and political advocacy, um, it's made my career feel really special to me and feel like something that, you know, I never know what one of my days is going to be like. And that's exciting. Yeah. No, completely. Um, and I think we're also benefited by all these different, you know, experiences that you have to pull in. Um, I'm thinking about listeners who might be, you know, listening to this and being like, well, I don't watch The Bachelor. Um, why should I read this book? Um, and I'm curious to hear what you would say to them um, about that. Yeah, it's been really funny for me to see. I've gotten so much amazing reader feedback already, um, you know, on Instagram and Goodreads. And I'm so grateful for all the people who are reading and chiming in. And it's been really fun to see, you know, people who do watch The Bachelor and they're like, if you watch The Bachelor, you're gonna love this book. You have to get this book. But if you don't watch The Bachelor, you might not really like it. And then people who don't watch The Bachelor are like, you know, if you're critical of The Bachelor and you're critical of reality TV and you're a feminist, you're gonna love this book but I don't know if you're gonna like it if you really love that that kind of show (laughs) so it's been like so 
funny. And that's perfect. That's exactly what I was going for. Because I do really love The Bachelor. And I do really love reality TV. But I am, you know, an avid intersectional feminist. And I am really critical of these kinds of culture and the things that they do that maybe aren't good for society as a whole. So my goal with the book was both to celebrate this thing that I love and be really critical. So my hope is that whether you love The Bachelor, whether you hate The Bachelor, whether you've never seen an episode and you're like, what is that? Um, that you can still come to this narrative um, and find, you know, something to connect to and something to enjoy. Mm -hmm. So speaking of uh, joy, um, I'm thinking about, you know, the popularity of the Netflix and Hulu romantic comedies or their modern update of classics. And also it feels like, you know, this rise in popularity within the romance and romantic comedy genre of books. Um, So first I want to know, like, why you think these, you know, this genre is so popular right now and people are consuming it so much. Um, And how do you think One to Watch kind of fits within that landscape? Yeah, I mean, I personally just love romantic comedies, right? Going back to there are a lot of um, classic sort of golden age of Hollywood films referenced in the book to Nora Ephron, who's my personal hero, um, to, you know, things that are happening right now in that space. And I think what's so interesting about romantic comedy is that it is that joy, right? It is that happy ending and that really satisfying narrative arc that we love so much. But it's also a genre that's for women. It's about women and it's largely by women. And I think, you know, when you're looking to other genres where women are really excluded, it can feel really nice to have this space that's like, you know what, we're about your stories and and we're celebrating your stories. And more than that, it can be you know, when you have a genre that has these specific rules of it starts like this and the midpoint is this and the end of act two is this and the ending is this, you have an opportunity working within those constraints to be really subversive Mm -hmm. and to say, okay, well, if a genre, you know, like romantic comedy, if the whole rule is that it's about romance and that it's about finding joy through finding a relationship, how can we use that genre to be subversive and say that a woman doesn't have to have a relationship to have joy in her life? How do we find it to say, you know, what is her worth and her value outside of what any man has ever thought about her? So I think you know, as the genre has become more modern and as we've had an opportunity to, to play and be subversive with it more, it's evolved in a way that allows us to really bring a feminist narrative to a space that has historically always been by and for women. Mm-hmm. What do you hope readers will respond to in reading One to Watch? What do you hope that they'll take away from in discovering your book and reading it and and meeting B, this incredible heroine that you've created? Um, What do you hope they're going to take away from that? Um, I hope that readers read my book and put it down and go, wow, beauty standards are so stupid and so destructive, you know, not just for women, for men, for, you know, gender nonconforming people, for everyone, right? That we have this system that says largely to women that it is so important to spend your money and your time and your power and your energy conforming to this really arbitrary and ever-changing set of standards that's about conforming to what men think about you and thinking about things like, you know, 97 of diets fail, yet the weight loss industry takes $70 billion, mostly from women, every year. And, and why? 
right? For what? And obviously it's not as easy as just saying, oh, beauty standards are dumb. I'm not going to apply them to my life anymore because they're so ubiquitous in pop culture. And there are real consequences, right? If you're, if you're fat, you're less likely to get hired for a job or promoted at a job. It's hard to access unbiased medical care, right? Like there are very serious consequences to fat phobia in our society. But I think the first step is kind of recognizing how pervasive the problem is and saying to yourself, okay, how can I make this less pervasive in my own life? What can I do to say, you know, what matters is actually whether I'm happy. What matters is actually whether I'm good to the people that I love and whether they're good to me and the rest of it, let's let it fall by the wayside. Mm So uh, tall order perhaps for a a beach read, but uh, hopefully (laughs) people take a little of it away. Yeah. But I think that's what, you know, bring so much joy and and why this book stays with you so much while also being an escape. It also, I think, makes us look at our world and, you know, our existence as women in the world a little differently and and also brings comfort, which is great. Um, You know, so just to wrap up, I would love to know what you've read lately that you've loved. What are you looking forward to reading? Um, what's what's going to be your beach reading uh, for the rest of the summer? Oh, man. Well, I just finished um, Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed, and that book blew my mind. Um, I thought, uh, you know, the story was so riveting. I couldn't put it down, and sort of the way the characters' lives connected with each other really surprised me. And at the same time, uh, she was so subtle in sort of the ways she got it different aspects of of racism and especially how it plays um, in the minds of white folks who see themselves as really liberal. Um, I just thought that that book was so smart and and just I couldn't put it down. So I loved that one. Um, Right now I'm in the middle of Anna Kay by Jenny Lee, which is a retelling of Anna Karenina in the sort of gossip girl world of New York City's elite private schools. And also um, Anna is Korean American in the retelling. Um, So there's like culturally a lot of really interesting stuff happening and it's also just, you know, unbelievably fun. So I'm really enjoying that. And then I just got actually yesterday, Samantha Irby's new essay collection. Wow. No, thank you. And I'm a huge fan of hers. Um, she writes for, you know, in addition to being an essayist, um, and a really celebrated writer across a lot of genres, she also writes for Shrill, um, which is a TV show that I absolutely love. Um, so I'm really looking forward to cracking that one open at the beach. Well, that's great. Um, Kate, this was such a pleasure to chat and so excited for one to watch hooray thank you emma you're the greatest (laughs) and now here's an exclusive excerpt from the audiobook courtesy of penguin random house audio the flea market at clignanco was at the far northern edge of the city a few blocks past the final stop on the number four metro where the parisian architecture grew more simple more mundane a reminder that not all of the city was steeped in centuries of history and romance. Some of it was just where people went to work and took their kids to school and bought their bread in plain old supermarkets instead of quaint boulangerie. Bee had come to the flea market in search of gifts for her family. Maybe some lace for her mother or vintage records for her brother Duncan. But she also hoped she might find some etchings for herself. Or even better some children's books with hand-tipped illustrations to read with her stepfather to her new baby nephew. Her friends in her study abroad program had raved about their flea market finds, so B thought it was worth a trip. 
even if there was no chance of buying chic vintage clothes like the ones they had modeled for her. It was hard enough for B to shop in America, let alone here in Paris, where it was almost unthinkable to see a woman on the street who couldn't be described as bird-boned. After years of practice, B thought she'd mastered the art of being large and invisible at the same time. The dark, baggy clothes, the quiet manner, the downward gaze. When she arrived as a freshman at UCLA and found herself surrounded by lithe, toned Californians, she was afraid she'd stand out like a bulbous blemish on a glassy complexion. But the L.A. culture of self-obsession made it easier than she expected to slip by unseen. In Paris, though, she felt eyes everywhere she went. The city was so beautiful, Bee's favorite place she'd ever been. Yet she couldn't shake the feeling that the entire population was noticing her, judging her, preferring silently that she would leave. Waiters and booksellers in cramped cafes and shops, narrow aisles stuffed with tables and wares, B stepping carefully sideways to avoid toppling someone else's plate of pain au chocolat, salivating at the sound of those crunchy, buttery pastries that waif-like Parisians relished each morning without a second thought. Whenever B stepped into a patisserie to order something for herself, there were ripples of sideward glances, even occasional bald stares. The accusation always implied, it's your own fault you look like this. It was easier when she got farther out from the center of the city, into the diverse neighborhoods by the canal where the streets were wider and the pace was slower, where groups of students laughed and drank wine from paper cups on big concrete blocks by the water. It was similar at Clignancourt, Bee thought, as she made her way down the few blocks from the metro to the flea market, while people hurried by, too focused on their own lives to pause to sneer at her. Bee couldn't tell what the flea market was like from the outside. For a solid block, she could see only the back walls of the stalls, dark slabs of plywood and plasterboard, and she started to feel skeptical that this market could possibly be as extraordinary as her friends had insisted, but once she found the entrance, she understood. It was like stepping through Alice's looking glass into an entirely other place, where everything was wonderful and strange. The market was a maze, with pathways that cut at haphazard diagonals. Whichever way B turned, she never seemed to pass the same stalls twice. Each new alley bringing untold bins of brass knobs and walls of antique oil paintings and spools of silken ribbon. The stalls themselves didn't feel makeshift. Some were covered in ivy or string lights. Others had stucco walls and wooden shelves piled high with leather-bound books, so dusty Bee imagined they'd been there for decades. Wandering the market's aisles, Bee felt a sense of belonging she'd never experienced anywhere else in Paris. Or maybe, she considered, it was just that everything there was so lovely and bizarre that nothing and no one could be out of place. Before Bee realized how much time had passed, the sun was starting to set. So she made her way toward the edge of the market as proprietors packed up their stalls. Bee hadn't stopped by a single clothing purveyor, but near the market's exit, one stall caught her eye. It was filled exclusively with capes, racks and racks of heavy brocades and soft furs and embroidered silks. Bee cast the stall a longing glance, but it wasn't any use. She was sure that no cape in the place was big enough to cover her body. 
that instead of cocooning her in luxury, the capes would simply hang off her back, like a child playing dress-up with a beach towel fastened at the neck. But the shopkeeper, a reedy, androgynous Frenchwoman in her 60s, in oversized black glasses, saw B looking and took a step toward her. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Erin Leaf, and until next time, this has been Books Connect Us.